I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Bill and Ted face the music. When your wives suggested couples therapy, do you think that this is what they had in mind? Definitely. I mean, we're a couple of couples, right? Bill, Ted, enough of the delusions. You didn't time travel. And you didn't go to heaven and hell. Here's a real idea for you. Be role models to your daughters. Get real jobs. Bill, we've spent our whole life trying to unite the world. And I'm tired, dude. Ted, we have a destiny to fulfill. Greetings, my excellent friend. We have a problem. Step forward. A song created by Preston Logan. Performed tonight will save reality as we know it. Oh. Dude, we better write that song now. Or why can't we just go to the future when we have written it? And take it from ourselves. Except, won't that be stealing? Cheers! <laughs> How is that stealing? If we're stealing it from ourselves, dude. <laughs> Our dads are totally in trouble. You should help them out. No way. How's, How's it going, going Bill and Ted? We're putting together a most extraordinary band. Hey, you want to be in our band? Oh. <laughs> oh, this is so fantastic. We're going to go talk to death. Is he playing hopscotch by himself? Dude, he's cheating. Hey, Death. My it isn't a wild stallion. Let's rock! Be excellent to each other and party on, dude. Yeah! Billy! Death! How you doing? Well, you know, we're dead and we're in hell. But how you doing? Welcome to the third and final installment in the saga of space, time, the afterlife, music, and harmony. Rejoining us from the Recorded Tomorrow podcast, we have regular guest Jesse Ferguson. Hello, hello. Sorry, I was muted. He's he's (laughs) joining us from the future. (laughs) There's a bit of a lag. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse is 10 seconds into the future. What's it like? That's right. (laughs) <laughs> About the same. <laughs> From the Infinity podcast with Patrick H. Willems, we have Time is a Lake, Jellical Revolutionary, Rachel Quirky Schenk. Oh my God, please always call me a Jellical Revolutionary. <laughs> like, I'm literally changing my entire Twitter bio to Jellical Revolutionary. New business Thank cards. You. Literally on my business cards. Are Fight you the power with those paws. Who oh also co hosts Screen Snark as well. I do, actually. yeah. <clears throat> and. He insisted we call him this Psyduck fancying Scott Thomas. Yes. <laughs> yes. He is the Dennis Caleb McCoy of Pokemon. So how can I not be a Psyduck enthusiast? I love, I love that both Scott and I have an affinity for hell beasts. You know, <laughs> I love Jellicle cats and he loves this Pokemon. And like, when you really think about them, when you truly like ponder them in your mind, you're like, oh, right. These are what demons would be to, like, medieval people. They'd be like, what the fuck? 
<laughs> oh, and to note, Scott Thomas also co-hosts the, is it And the Best Picture Is? It is And the Best Picture Is, that's exactly right. Podcast. Right. Okay. <clears throat> First, a little essay, and then we'll get into the talking points. Bill and Ted 3 existed only as potential for some 29 years, all the way from the okayish reception of Bogus Journey up until its long, long anticipated, awaited, and unlikely return, emerging in 2020 like Schrodinger's box office success, a film that we all badly needed, but barely anybody saw. But I do feel it will be, it is destined to become a cult classic. And like the absurdly popular Force Awakens and the similarly overlooked Terminator Dark Fate and Blade Runner 2049, this is a Lega sequel, a story wherein the Generation X heroes of the past reevaluate their lives and their largely failed efforts and step back to allow the younger generations to receive and carry the torch, assisting them along the way with faith in their capabilities, proving their significance as a link in the chain, but accepting that the rhythm of the universe does not begin and end with them. Each one of these stories has this twofold approach, actively encouraging the older viewers to buck the trend of previous old generations of suppressing and belittling the young, exemplified by Ted's father in the original film. And since then, in a million articles about how millennials ruined the napkin industry, the crochet monopoly, and the penny farthing racket. And at once, it also empowers the young to follow in the footsteps of those who came before, listen to their songs and remix and create their own, becoming vital steps forward for our species, our collective energies, with all the love and faith that you deserve backing you up. The film exemplifies this forward momentum through Ted's daughter Billy and Bill's daughter Thea, they aren't just passionate about rock music the way their fathers are. They have a consistently surprising insight into the history and forms of music and an awareness of the chain of influence running through our lifespan upon the earth. This means that when they draw the key musical figures from history, Mozart, Armstrong, Hendrix, each of these was inspired by the last in the line. And it is the harmony of that chain looping around itself that creates this universal bond across all planes. It is the song of us. What I noticed this time was that all of these musicians, considering the exact point in time they are recovered from by Billy and Thea, to a man or to a woman, have not yet hit their creative peak. Hendrix recorded Electric Ladyland in 1968, a year after the girls grab him out of time. Armstrong recorded Cakewalking Babies three years after his origin point in 1925 with Eva Taylor, and he recorded Hotter Than That in 27. Mozart would not compose The Marriage of Figaro for five more years until 1786, and Cosi Fantuti in 1790. Ling Lun had already created, as we see on screen, bamboo flutes, but might not have yet recreated animal hide drums until after having met the drummer of the ancient world, Grom, played by real-life drummer Patty Ann Miller, who presumably surpassed Keith Moon as soon as she was sent back to 11,500 BCE. <laughs> And Kid Cudi, for his part, rapping about his own insecurities, has always wanted to help reach kids, make them feel less alone, and lower the incidence of teen suicide. And we can only assume that in the coming future, as he reaches his peak, he will succeed in this quest in a significant and lasting way. 
In the meantime, Bill and Ted have grown, if anything, more attached to one another, and it becomes increasingly apparent that the princesses did not marry two men, but a being which exists across two bodies. In effect, each babe is married to one half of an almost entirely symmetrical gestalt entity of two. And when they confront their future selves, they aren't traveling forwards, but inwards, encountering the potentiality for bitterness and resentment and anger and self-entitlement and self-deception and confusion which exists within all of us, even those so outwardly peaceful and happy-go-lucky that we cannot imagine their shadow selves. But it is these twisted wild stallions that they must contend with in order to self-actualize and reach a level of understanding of both the inner verse and the outer. And when I listened to Jesse's podcast and he interviewed Spiros Mikalakis, the consultant on time travel for this third film, as well as Avengers Endgame, my brain was put on a quantum treadmill and given a serious workout. But what blew me away was the principle that time travel equates to a cosmic form of empathy. Your perception as you travel through history at a faster speed or in a different direction to everybody else changes as you may, you may take on board the organism of humanity as it exists across time, at once understanding yourself and everybody else. In effect, a film series like this requires exactly the open mindsets of its affable heroes and heroines. These feats of musical unity and cross-cultural empathy cannot be achieved by the close-minded, and that is what we have had illustrated to us through these stories to observe, incorporate, and perhaps replicate in our own muddled, mundane lives. A flow with everything that is everything. A knowledge for what was, and a hope for what may be. A hunger to learn, and a drive to bridge the gaps that exist between us. So let's talk about Face the Music and expand on what I've been waiting to say for so long, folks. Um, I have I, to applaud that. That was... What a, what a setup. Thank what a you. setup. I hope yeah, I haven't eaten too that. much off the buffet. But, um, like, we've got... Like, this is a dense film, so I reckon we've got some stuff we can get our teeth into. So what do we know about the intentions of the two writers of all three movies, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, this time? What was the story in its making? Watching this movie, I started to have my guesses from viewing one, and especially on this viewing. In fact, I watched it this time with an eye towards what the aim of it might be, not just within the film, but thinking about Ed Solomon as a presence on Twitter mm. and knowing what he's been writing about this year and last year in the lead up to it. And I'll, I'll tell you that my phrase that emerged for me was Gen X Reclamation Project, which is to say that this feels like Gen X reckoning with itself, attempting to do the work on itself in a way that is if not self-aggrandizing, 
then loving of the self and allowing that love to be on display once the work is done, but then also doing the work, which is passing on the baton, making space Mm -hmm. from a radical place of empathy. Because like every generation, Gen X is in its reckoning phase with becoming the older generation and having to look and understand that they are both present and being passed by at the same time. Mm. And Bill and Ted are never positioned as those characters in the first two films. They are the generation. They are the youth movement. They are the thing, as we discussed, like in Bogus Journey, where the studio is hungry to spend more time with them, so hungry that they'll put a sequel on a very fast timetable to get made. That's not the case with this film. And I think that that was... I saw all sorts of sort of hints and clues in that, be it the actual plot points of the way they're reckoning with their future selves in different realities or the film's climax, or I think very crucially, the scene with death, which, spoilers for my takes on this movie moving forward, that fight with death is one of the most important things in the whole movie to me, thematically, mm-hmm. and I it took a third viewing of this movie. This is my third time seeing this movie. It took a third viewing of this movie for me to click into how important that sequence is. And it really speaks, Alex, I think to what you said, this is a deeply dense film. I almost want to ask you what your take on, on uh, uh, their argument with death is, because I kind of want us to bounce around. And when we have a point that feels like we can grab onto it, that we should, capitalize on it are you folks um okay listening to uh to to what this death thing is before we move back to the original question absolutely i am i would be okay listening to scott interpret the phone book he's (laughs) he's great (laughs) scott the floor is yours amazing so i alec i want to bounce off your point which i had not thought of that all of these characters we see have not yet hit their creative peaks I think something that's very exciting about this movie is the idea that the best ideas we have are not born of ourselves necessarily. The spark is there, but it is ultimately realized more through other people, whether it is your band, whether it is putting it out into the universe, than it is in a vacuum. And it was on this viewing that I caught that when um, B and T, as I like to call the daughters, decide that they're going to go speak with death, he is playing the beginnings of the riff that will form the song Face the Music. If you listen to what he's playing on bass, it is in fact the chord progression. It's already in him. It's in him somewhere, but it's not fully realized. The fourth note, he does sort of a classic pop song structure where I would have to go back and look, but it's the, it's the same set of chords that formed the every pop song ever, if you guys remember that viral video where they <laughs> move through the, it's the exact same chord progression. But he does the first three of that progression and then the fourth one drops out. He doesn't actually have the whole progression yet. And I think the film is showing us in that moment, we need death. We actually need death both for this song and we need death to exist. A beautiful thing about this movie is that death is both low stakes and kind of radically high stakes in the way that it is accepted as part of the fabric. You just go to hell in the world of Bill and Ted. Mm-hmm. And when you're on your deathbed, the stake is not dying. The stake is doing a good thing and reckoning with like yourself. And to me, that's one of the things that 
is amazing about that fight with death because first on top of it being some of the most incredible exposition i've ever seen committed to film because it's it's the pope in the pool trick as they call it and save the cat when you're having fun you can get away with sharing almost any amount of information and the film catches us up on 19 years of history in that moment absolutely incredible but also that's a moment where these two characters are reckoning with death quite literally the the specter of the unknown and really reckoning technically with the way they wanted to live everything in this movie has brought them up to a moment where they are facing their end they're in hell they are with this person that will eventually come for them and form the end of their life and they're finding a way to be graceful with death as best they can and they actually struggle to do that without the help of their daughters they can't quite get there without the help of their youth the youth are the thing in the best version of life that makes us feel most comfortable about dying it's never comfortable it's never safe but it is the idea that when we pass the world will be in a better place and we will have left a truly strong legacy and b and t go in to say it's okay we are okay with death we we accept him it's our turn to talk to him not yours we've got you we take care of this that is the first act where they pack the baton or pass the baton rather the first one where we're uh bnt pick it up and go with it and it is all quite literally surrounding death even though death in this instance is a spurned musician slash incredible bass player <laughs> there's so much going on in that scene it's so gorgeous and it it, it allows that theme to kind of exist as not white noise but a, a, as a b storyline of sorts because the film really doesn't explicitly make itself about bill and ted reckoning with their end game but if you watch the movie it's all in there it's all in there up until the moment that they pass the baton and it's never too heavy-handed because everything in this movie is so light and effervescent and it's really it's an extraordinary stacking of thematic blocks yeah and it's the baseline if you like it's the it's the baseline that underpins the whole uh thematic conflagration yes that's the that's i couldn't have put it better i didn't put it better you did that's amazing that's so <laughs> perfect she was always yes. the bass player whenever we played rock bands so she understands well, I, <laughs> the importance of bass yeah, I, I used to play the cello so it's <laughs> so know, cello yeah bass. you get a bass <laughs> yeah Okay, so, I mean, the same question's still there, unless you, you folks are ready to move on. Do, do we know what the intentions were, or can we intuit the intentions beyond this, uh, what Scott's already said? I think Scott pretty much nailed it, is that it, yeah. it and, and I don't have any explicit details either, other than what we heard from Spiros about how the movie almost didn't get made a couple of times, and how they, they took to, like, getting money from family and friends to help keep the production going before they could make that up. What, but, what happened there? Because, um, you know, folks might not have heard your show on it yet. Sure. Uh, essentially, they just, they, they ran out of money, and the studio didn't want to give them any more. When would and this have been? So they, this would have been... Uh, just i don't remember how far into the production but it was uh so it was already it was, going it was already going yeah it was right. mid mid production if i remember correctly and uh so they took they they like ed solomon put down a bunch of his own money keanu reeves put down a bunch of his own money and they got they got capital from 
like I said, friends and family just to keep the production going. And those people all, you know, got their investment back eventually. But uh, yeah, for a while, it, it almost didn't happen. Hmm. If I mean, if any film was ever made by Kickstarter, it feels like this one <laughs> ultimately qualifies. The crowdfunding yep. model. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, the, regarding the actual plot of the film, because it might throw some people for a loop, especially if they are subscribing to what Jesse has already laid down regarding <laughs> the constants of the timeline. If mm-hmm. Bill and Ted are destined to create the song that unites us all, why are the leaders of the future now doubting their abilities to the point where they send back a Terminator? I wonder if it has a lot to do with a commentary on sort of like post-truth. You know, like at a certain point, what is what is set in stone is up for question. Like the the rewriting of history, you know, like considering that the future just now learned that 717 is the time or 7, is it 717 or 747? I can't remember numbers. Yes. Okay, cool. I got it right. So 717 is newly minted and newly come to light. And Mm -hmm. the the amorphous nature of the present, San Dimas 2020, and the the beginnings of the cracks in reality, I think all kind of coalesce into like, well, maybe this was the wrong path. You know, I think it is just a an embracing of the mystery of history. You know, like we may have written texts or the insight of a, of a great thinker like Rufus, but like when Rufus is gone, like who's the, who's next in line to be that sort of like bearer of history, you know, it is, it is his daughter, you know? So I think it's kind of a mix of the material change of reality. Like it is starting to crack up. We are, we are running out of all this time that we've had, married with our 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 sherpa through this this point in history is gone we are we are left with his progeny and and i think just the nature and the shifting of what is truth you know like what is on like what is reality like we're dealing with that right now in 2020 like here in our world not in bill and ted's world which is kind of our world but like this idea of like what is true what is false like the idea of fake news so i think a lot of maybe i'm reading too much into it but i think a lot of that could be there Mm. in the read of this it definitely fits with with where we are in history right now and while they may not have been in that place when they started writing this they certainly were when it came time to release the film um and i i think you may be onto something there rachel and it's i don't think it's just the um the sort of the post-truth element of it but also the idea that we are currently in this sort of Um, backwater eddy of how the future is progressing. Right Mm -hmm. now, it is really, really hard to see how we're going to come out of this. Not that we will come out of it at all, but what is the world going to look like when we come out of this? It's going to be very, very different from how we went in. And the, the predicting of that future has become very hazy and very difficult to do. Um, and I think that that may be reflected in the, the different locations that we appear at in the future that Bill and Ted visit in each of the movies. So in the first one, 
they beam straight into what appears to be the seat of government. Um, the, the people who, are, who kind of come in to see them and are impressed to see them, there's something a little bit civil servanty about them, you know, they, they all kind of have this sort of bureaucratic uniform thing going on, but it's, it's the seat of government. This is where the decisions are made, everything is very certain, this is the future and this is where it's going to happen. In Bogus Journey, they turn up at what is effectively a college, it's the seat of education for this world. Rufus the is a The robot lecturer. versions of themselves and the Chuck Denomalous turn up. Yes. Not actually them. But yeah, we that's what we, the audience, yeah, see. We, we, yeah, when we see the future, that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so then it's sort of this educational version of it, which, as you said, Rachel, is is a curated version of history. It's one where they they have the, the facts and they have uh, a truth, but it is assembled out of bits and pieces. History is never the whole story because we couldn't see it. As, as individuals, we couldn't possibly see the entirety of history. Our focus. brains would explode. There wouldn't be space in there for all of it. So it has right. to be selected and, and sort of you, you get this broken down version of it. The place they wind up at when Kelly takes them back... Side note, this, by the way, is why uh, history is marked by events. You say, what happened in 1066? And people go, well, this is the Battle of Hastings. Yeah. Uh, All sorts of things happened in 1066. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Loads of things everywhere. Yeah. yeah. How many, because that how many was birthdays a significant were there? Yeah, yeah. Ex- absolutely. What specific day in 1066 did you have in mind? Yeah. What happened um, in Tahiti in, seven, yeah. in 1066? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so when they turn up in this version of the future... It's the entrance, it's a pathway, it's going somewhere, but they don't see where, we don't see where. All of those those leaders and, and sort of heads of government have come out to meet them, but what we aren't seeing is where is this path going? How are we getting from A to B? And it, it kind of reminds me of what we talked about when we were discussing um, Star Trek, that you have this... Uh, kind of glowing version of the future when you watch the Star Trek TV shows but there isn't a clear path laid out as to how we get from here to there and a that mysteriously is what... attainable utopia exactly but yeah. that is what they're dealing with in this film it's the how do we get from here to there that's the bit we've got bound up on that's the bit we've got stuck on it almost feels like the future itself has lost faith in itself as a future mm. it's yeah. yep. I mean this ties in with the fact that Cinema began to really show us vivid visions of the future, starting with, say, um, the, the dystopias of the 70s, and, ah, oh, watch out, we, we'll end up eating people as Soylent Green, or the planet will be taken over <laughs> by apes, or uh, Logan's going to have a run, and, the, you know, <laughs> the Someone's last... Someone's got to escape from New York, you yeah, know. <laughs> the last forests will be, um, you know, up in a spaceship, and they'll just order them destroyed, and just all of these futures began in the 70s, but really by the 80s, we were getting, like, Blade Runner, cyberpunk, proper cyberpunk futures, and uh, you know, yeah, you know, we had governments who were taking notes on those dystopias and going, right, that's the work program for next year. Oh and in God. our literature, there was more specificity, and we were getting these yeah. visions up on screen. And then Terminator was saying, oh, it's going to be the robots who take over. Mm-hmm. And then, we- so you're going to stop making side yeah. uh, Skynet, right? Oh, heavens yeah. no! All the way up to the year 2000, when we got Futurama as this sort of parody version of the year 3000 reflecting our own but with Bill and Ted the fact that the future is destabilizing and all these historical figures are jumping about in history it kind of is uh, meta for our own preconceptions that in the future there will be flying cars and then we got here and it bloody wasn't 
Yeah. Not just that, though. The fact that we've got the internet now and we can we can see everything all at the same time. Oh, my goodness. And it, we are not getting a curated version of the world right now. We're getting, We're getting all of it at once and no one can tell what the truth is. Yeah. It's... It's really interesting that you bring up dystopian uh, cinema from like the 70s and the 80s. I don't know if if y'all watch uh, the YouTube channel Some More News, but there is an entire like cinema length video essay about dystopian movies from like our past from like 30, 40 years ago, dissecting like the presence of Donald Trump in all of them. And also the fact that a lot of these dystopian movies are sort of predicated on this sort of indoctrination for the next generation to prepare for disaster. You know, like this idea that only some people get to survive, you know, and it's like, it's about the survivors, you know, like zombie movies, only, only some people make it through, you know, this weird idea of our, the generation or two before us knew that something bad was going to happen. I'm thinking about the Exxon mobile scientists going, oh, oh shit, it's 1970. And if we don't change our carbon emissions, like we're gonna we're gonna face down a literal climate disaster in the next 40 years and, and <laughs> hi hello all about it yeah and and it's interesting that like the real world was predicting our future like what is happening now you know but 10 years ago a discussion of a global pandemic was up in the air like it is weird to see like the hindsight of leadership and the the foresight of cinema sort of coming together in this moment of 2020 and being like i guess we kind of knew all this was coming and the best preparation that we did for it was media that can sort of i don't want to say propagandize but like soften the blow of disaster that's actually the concept for a film disney put out a while back which was wildly unpopular called tomorrowland where um the 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 very idea of it is uh and jenny nicholson did not like this as a concept that um all of these post-apocalyptic sci-fis not only did they not discourage us we as a generation and as a species leaned into it yeah like, like we just oh, accepted gosh. well uh, what you what said about I there's only going to be some in survivors a zombie apocalypse. yeah, yeah like... and what we're talking about here is really just tech assisted biblical events it's just the rapture it's just the end times as written in these ancient ancient scrolls only now we're saying yes but the robots will help with this and kill all humans <laughs> yeah, they play that plague. trumpet really well yeah <laughs> that sounds like gabriel's electric trumpet <laughs> Oh and, my gosh, electric <laughs> trumpet. To back up the point of we leaned into it, one of my favorite examples of that in cinema is Minority Report. Not just because it gets it right, gets a few things right, but because they actually sat down, I remember this from the Blu-ray, with future engineers, people whose whole job is to predict and look at where the future is headed and go, I really think this is going to happen. And of course... As constructed in Minority Report, so much of what's present in the future is meant to feel nightmarish. As funny as the mall shopping scene is, it represents a literal danger for Tom Cruise's character to be identified or not identified in that moment. That technology is basically happening 
right now. Right now. It's just happening in, to in different ways than we expected. It is happening more covertly and silently. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we didn't shy away from it. We looked at it and went, oh, oh, that really would affect shopping habits. Oh, we gotta, oh, we gotta do that. So it's- <laughs> Well, that's it, it the really... thing, isn't it? That, that because movies are this, uh, this kind of collective psyche that both contemplates, comes to terms with, and inspires the people who are observing what's going on, they become these self-fulfilling prophecies. You create these dystopias and people watch them and maybe half of them are going, oh God, that's dreadful. We definitely shouldn't do that. And half are going, Hmm. <laughs> we could twist that to our own ends. <laughs> Imagine the marketing possibilities. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, this is... And then, I, I don't really want to talk about it too much, but this is why cyberpunk being wildly corporate in its leanings is, is mm -hmm. just irony heaped upon irony. <laughs> yeah. I have yet to play the game, but for what I've been hearing from everybody, mm -hmm. that tracks... <laughs> It is, Goodness it is, bullshit. hey, do you know what's awesome, kids? Capitalism, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's so that You want all the money there. so you can get yeah. all the enhancements. Uh. Wow, nothing, nothing like the punk rock of the status quo, you know? <laughs> oh, boy. I'm so edgy, I think that capitalism can be reformed. It's Ugh. Cyberpunk 2077 on Cyber Monday for $20.77. Punk rock. <laughs> Starring Keanu Reeves. Oh, oh he's had a mixed baby. year. Poor baby. Um, I, I do think, sale. as well, just expanding on this um, sort of theory of, of these, um, the blurring of a future that it's, it's difficult to pick out the path of, I did see a lot of seeding in the first maybe 15 minutes of the film that kind of enhances that sense of the universe starting to fold in on itself and everything starting to kind of turn into this little mini whirlpool that it's difficult to pull things out of. So the first thing you have is B&T's intro, which intersects directly with the outro from Bogus Journey. So you're getting a, a, a future uh, retrospective take. Which entirely refutes most of that newspaper finale. Exactly, yeah. So there are there are significant differences, but it's it's intercutting with what went on in that version of events. So you've got that, then you've got the fact that all of these historical figures are being yanked out of where they should be, and at this point we don't necessarily know where they're going to, they're just disappearing. Um, so this is sort of bits of the universe now starting to overlap with each other. And then you have their um, the wedding they outline how their various <laughs> relationships overlap with Missy at the centre. And she has kind of become yeah. this almost um, uh, Mother Earth uh, intersection of how they all relate to each other as, as people who are in this family. But the, the family parts of it all go via... Um, this one person. And that's and how my dad became his own his son. His own son, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it segues into the wedding song and them trying to blend all of these instruments, but because they're trying to play them all themselves, and as we've already established, Bill and Ted aren't even two people. They are a gestalt entity. So this is technically one being one trying person. to play all these instruments at the same time, and it just becomes this melange, this mess that they can't pick anything out of. I, I do. I, I have to back them up. That song is a banger. I do. 
I, song yeah, is no, great. I'm sorry. I'm a sucker for anything that has a theremin. It, it's. I want to hear parts two and three. I I would kickstart the whole pro. Now that the world is safe, I would like to hear the finished version of that composition. Now they've got time. They've I have got time, never heard bagpipes sound good, and the bagpipes sound good. <laughs> But, but you're right, it's impossible for them to do it all. And you realize that they've been trying to do it all over the course of the whole first act of the movie. They've been trying to do this while being hyper-present uh, uh, husbands, which we find out is not what's been happening at all. They are in couples therapy, and the gravity of couples therapy hasn't even really occurred to them mm. when they show up for the first time. That only becomes apparent as the film goes on. What's wild, too, though, and I think it's really beautiful to pick up on your point, is a constant for them does seem to have been being great fathers, mm. which everyone but uh, Officer Theodore Logan seems to agree that they've done a tremendous job raising their kids and their kids reflect the best of them, mm. which I this time noticed was when he's saying that at the wedding, they're in the conga line of four people with two other small children already kind of <laughs> passing on the joy to another generation. Yeah. It's just an absolutely beautiful shot and choice. But yeah. Yeah. That leads to my next question, actually, because we kind of lose Joanna and Elizabeth in the film. They go off into history and you have to pay close attention to where their path is or indeed when their path is. Uh, so, so what actually happens to them? Because it's, uh, you know, for folks who may have uh, lost them along the way, what do they go through? What's their journey and what's their realisation? I think they do what they do in theory because we only really hear it spoken of. We don't see them engaging in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they, they kind of give proof of concept to this film being a shift from... Um, uh, timeline um, hopping and planes of reality hopping to alternative universe and, and different um, uh, alternative timeline uh, shifting. So that the, the idea that they go back in, they say they go back in time or forward in time, but the idea is that they are trying to find a version of events where things worked out that they were happy with Bill and Ted. So that suggests so in that seeing that, are... much like in the original film, knowing that they can achieve it, they would be comfortable going back to attempt to then achieve it. Precisely. But the point is that you, you can't find that by simply moving forward. You can't just skip forward and go, well, let me find the place where this all comes together because then I will feel like it inevitably does. It's implied that they are looking at different outcomes for different happenings, which then kind of solidifies this idea of there are now multiple realities and multiple universes. That seems to go against what Jesse originally said about the timeline where everything, much like in Prisoner of Azkaban, everything was going to be happening and you could throw mm -hmm. a stone in the back ah. of your own head and always would. Yeah, I don't think that necessarily contradicts it though because if you've got this multiple universe theory then not only has everything that has happened will be going to happen, everything that could have happened has going to have happened. <laughs> Anybody? Jesse, the person who run, runs the time travel we, podcast? We are outside the trousers of time at this point. <laughs> okay, Sharon, first that makes perfect sense. 
and I think you're absolutely right. Um, I do want to back up just a second Go with uh, with respect to uh, Joanne and Elizabeth because the the premise or the idea that they that older versions of themselves took them and are hopping around the multiverse trying to find a version of of history or a version of their life where they are happy is the supposition that older Bill and Ted make. And it's what is happening from Bill and Ted's perspective. I don't think that's actually what's happening. I think that older Joanna and Elizabeth went and found present Joanna and Elizabeth at the crucial time when they were questioning themselves and their relationship mm. and picked them up and took them all across the multiverse to prove to them that right now where we live, this reality is the good one. And this is where you belong. So that mm. justifies that line, which uh, Ed Solomon said wasn't justified at the end of uh, bogus journey. The best time to be is now. The best right. place to be is here. The best yeah. place to be is here. And, mm-hmm. and and I'll go even a little a, a little further and build on what everybody has said so far and, and maybe throw in off the cuff what I think the thematic purpose might be, which is I think one lesson of this film is that there are no band-aids, right? You can't have a quick fix. You can't with haste just take care of saving reality. The work has to have been done and you have to make the tricky decisions there. You can't steal the song from Dave Grohl. You can't (laughs) just sort of have your counterintuitive thought of we'll go take it from ourselves. There's going to be something that's led to it. And I don't think this film is anti-mental health at all. In fact, I think it's very pro-mental health. But I think the couples therapy that they're engaging in is sort of standing in for the real work that everybody needs to do before they can be in that room. Mm. And Joanna and I'm forgetting the name of the other wife. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. I can't believe I forgot it. Joanna and Elizabeth time traveling is actually owning them doing the work that they would need to do because they're not ordinary people living in 2020. They're medieval princesses who have time traveled to this place in time. So it makes sense that for them to actually explore themselves, they might not actually be able to do it in 2020 San Dimas. They would want to take on the whole breadth of the world because that's been the scope of their life. They're these extraordinary people who have gone on an extraordinary journey and just winding up in a therapist room and saying, let's just take it from this angle, which is the angle we're supposed to take it from. That is the the fix. If I go to therapy, this will get better. That's only part of the work. Part of the work is what you do outside of the therapy room to then bring into talking with your therapist or working on yourself. And so they actually leave the room to go explore and and be out in the world. And they come to find um, out things about themselves and the rest of the story in in passing. And so I think it, it kind of backs up in parallel what Bill and Ted have been going through, not just because they're jumping through time, but because they're they're doing the thing that was most emblematic of their life up until that point and kind of acknowledges the extraordinary in them. So it's kind of a temporal-themed trial separation. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. To point, yeah. Or, or even just the uh, for couples therapy to work at, in its in its best form 
the individuals involved in it will also be doing their own therapy because there is mm-hmm. stuff that they need to work out separately mm. that they can't do in a room with the, the person that they're trying to reconcile with. And I would agree with you completely, Scott, about the whole it's, it's, not, it's not down on therapy, but it is making the point that this form of therapy, which honestly couples therapy can be very rigid and it can be very prescribed and mm-hmm. you know because it's not an individual with an individual which is what the the basic one-to-one therapy would be there are compromises and modifications that have to be made mm. and for this particular group of people right here and right now that's just not going to cut it that's just not going to work they need more than that they need um a, they need a wider view of of what's gone on in their lives so, I mean, along the same lines, when Bill and Ted themselves go travelling, they're trying to find their future selves and f- and learn the song that they are one day destined to record from them, and they only find a pair of assholes, a pair of bitter, angry, and, like I said, entitled assholes who seem almost worse every time. Yeah. Um, so, so now they're actually traveling not necessarily into direct this is definitely going to happen futures but into possible mm-hmm. futures mm. but what is yeah. the impact of meeting all of these ooh, versions of ooh, themselves ooh, ooh. I got it I got it I got it <laughs> it is it is the literal consequence of them trying to time travel in this moment those other selves are the, the literal embodiment of them not putting in the work now trying to skip ahead so it's sort of like Cheating, their idea to, to to go and find their future selves and get the song is planting the seed of their own destruction and we see that bloom faster than we would because we are time traveling like the neg- negative Bill and Ted only exist because our Bill and Ted decided that they were going to time travel forward Th- that is I think that is what it is like those incarnations are the consequence of them not actually doing the thing that they're supposed to do. Like they're trying to skip to the happy ending, but because they didn't do the work to get to the happy ending, that happy ending can't exist. They they planted the wrong seeds and the wrong flowers bloomed. I agree completely, Rachel. That's almost exactly what I've got written down here, that they start this path of being willing to steal the song from themselves. And as a result, they grow into people who are willing to steal the song from Dave Grohl. Their ethics are more and more compromised the, as they move the forward. The more they move the forward. Mm-hmm. They become. Yeah, exactly. Because they're just sort of like compounding the original problem like they're 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 germinating the bad seed and it is it is blooming into an entire meadow of just garbage mm. and essentially this is a um a kind of it's it's not a broken progression but what we talked about with regards to them having complete faith in the first movie that the world will turn out okay because they've been told that they will be these seeds for the future because they don't have that clear path that's why they're starting to lose it that's why they're starting mm-hmm. to lose the uh, the faith that they will be able to accomplish what's being asked of them um, and that is not enough to carry them forward now because now they're actually having to make those steps and they don't have the how they don't yeah, understand still- the how 
they still don't understand that they have to be good at their instruments, you know? They, this also comes in with what I said earlier about um, why do the people of the future not have faith in them? It's very significant that the spokeswoman for the people, of the, the rulers of the future, is old. She old as fuck. She's exactly <laughs> what she happens. She's old as fuck. <laughs> She's exactly what happens when the old lose faith in the young and no longer support them, but in fact endanger them. They expect so much, and then they almost say, well, you haven't achieved it, so the whole thing may as well be ruined. Yeah, and specifically, she's not just saying it to them as well. She's saying it to her own daughter. Yeah. Her own child, who is supposed to carry her seeds forward, she's not giving her the trust to be able to do that. Um, yeah. And the few old people who could have spoken truth in their language are dead because George yeah. Carlin sadly departed. Mm, so now we're just left with a bunch of people who are old and scared and worried that their time is going to collapse because the young didn't do anything about it. Although he was, exa- George Carlin was exactly who I was thinking of when um, Spiros was talking about the the most intelligent people in the world are stand-up comedians. comedians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because so very empathy as another form of emotional genius. Yeah. And specifically being able to relate that to other people kind of piggybacking on laughter so they will not only accept it but also laughter is um it's a, a an expression which enables us to feel things faster and deeper because it, it literally produces chemicals in our brains mm-hmm. that then through the, the physical action and motion of laughing move around us faster than they would under normal circumstances they unlock us precisely when, when, yeah. when anger or fear or something like that is produced and you're not doing anything to move it along it just sits there and yeah. laughter and tears move those things along it's true. It's it's why you it's why sometimes when you're in a funk, you need a good tearjerker to sort of like wring out that emotion. You are talking so much about like comedy and I can't stop thinking about Hannah Gadsby's second special Douglas mm-hmm. where I don't I don't know if you guys saw it. I got to see it live and it was amazing. Um, wow. But like. I don't know if if this actually made the the Netflix cut because I actually I haven't watched it on Netflix yet. But like Hannah Gadsby walks out on stage and literally says everything that she is going to do to you, like just expressly explains, I'm going to make you laugh. Then I'm going to make then I'm going to make it weird. Then you're going to laugh because it's weird. And then we're going to like bring back this moment where I was talking to you about all the things that I'm going to do to you through this comedy special. And you're going to go, oh, my God, like just literally like laying down the groundwork of this of this special that she's doing right at the gate and then absolutely nails it every step of the way. I completely agree. Comedians are empathy geniuses because like it is. It was a staggering experience to suddenly like be swept up in a comedy special that's talking about like paintings of the Renaissance and, and all of a sudden it's just like stopping the show and going, see, I did it. And it was just like, oh, this is magic. <laughs> You've also pretty much laid down why arch conservative comedians suck and aren't funny. They just can't because they don't, they don't understand that like their craft is a craft of empathy. You know, like the this this storytelling, movie making, music writing, all of these forms of creating something out of nothing are creations of empathy. Like 
You can take something as stupid as like a song I wrote about a deli cat that I like. And it's just like inviting you to empathize with like someone who really likes deli cats. You know, like I love seeing a cat in a bodega and like you're my little best friend. And thank you for guarding this bodega for me. <laughs> you know, I love you so much. And it's just an invitation to empathize with with someone else's experience. And I think when when conservatives and edgelords want to try and do that they're not coming from a place of empathy they're coming from a place of shame and mockery and they're trying to pull people to their position they're trying to say we all feel like that don't we yeah. who else for the had... love of god please come with me on this who else has had this yeah. mean thought I'm going to say a mean thought and I'll make sure that you now have it. Yeah, my ex-girlfriend for everything bad that's ever happened to me, you know, and it's just like, Mm. that's not, that's not a place of empathizing. That's a place of hurt, of hurting. But empathy has to start with self-compassion. You have to be able to be honest about the things you feel that are shameful, that are hurtful, that are quote unquote bad and then reflect on that and be kind to yourself about the fact that you have those thoughts and those feelings. Because, yes, everybody does have those thoughts and those feelings. But the more you squash them and try to pretend that you don't or try to pretend that um, everybody does to the extent that it's right and proper that we should act on them all the time, the more they're going to manifest and they're going to be out there in society hurting people. Mm-hmm. What's wild about that, too, is I think Bill and Ted, when they're going on their journey, start to have less and less empathy for themselves as it goes. Mm -hmm. And so to back up Rachel's takes, the visions they get get more and more corrosive. And they're ultimately acting less from a place of empathy and more from a place of fear. Fear, if we don't get this done, reality itself is going to split apart. Mm -hmm. Whereas conversely, on the other side of the coin, B and T are going through their journey with the utmost empathy for every single person. Even going down to that death take where they have enough emotional intelligence to go, yeah, that album really wasn't the best, but that solo, most excellent. Some of the greatest work that's ever been done. Mm. And like my heat check take, and this may not make sense at all, we're dealing with a very (laughs) dense time travel movie, is as Bill and Ted are moving into the future having decided to steal the song from themselves and planting the seeds for these bitter versions of themselves, the world is still pressing on, right? Reality hasn't collapsed. So there is an indication that somehow reality got to continue, which to me implies that that's only happening, maybe, because B and T wound up being successful in their quest, actually got the thing done the way they were always foretold to write the song, Preston Logan. And then Bill and Ted come to represent the generation being bitter that the youth figured it out or were pushing things forward. They come to represent the worst Mm -hmm. impulse of an older generation going, no, that's not how it was supposed to work. Or anybody telling Greta Thurberg to shut up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Literally, yes. That's so it. Oh, David Hogg, shut up. We need to start arming the teachers. You're wrong. Off you go. Yeah, but I, it's weird. To, it's weird to bring this up, but like even Ed Solomon, the creator of this, has I have seen fall prey to that line of thinking uh, through what I what I what I've seen on on Twitter. There was one one tweet that Ed Solomon made a, a little bit before 
the election and and shortly after Bill and Ted faced the music where he was essentially yelling at the youth for not voting and saying not voting means you get what you deserve and it was like you're being Bill and Ted from the the garbage flower timeline right now and not Bill and Ted at the end. Like you're on the journey as well, Ed. Like you've created this piece where you're like lovingly passing the torch. And it's it's such a complicated way of being like everything is so dire for us here in 2020 that like I can understand vacillating between like rage and sorrow and and blame and also like acceptance and and grace and all of these things and like it's so interesting to see a person make this piece be the facets of the piece you know i i was struck with this idea of just like yeah imagine if in bill and ted face the music bill and ted and joanna and elizabeth and and billy and thea just scream at people to take the instruments like just scream at them you know like how fun would that have been just listen just listen and play this okay play the goddamn moon already oh god jesus you know 118 beats per minute yeah it was just one of those moments of like real like that real messy humanity coming from someone who who seemingly understands the premise of their piece, but also is as susceptible as the rest of us are to kind of like negative, shameful thinking. I think it's really fascinating. You know, I think the pieces that Ed Solomon have made are, are so wonderful, but that one tweet like sticks with me as just like the antithesis of it and being presented by the person who like helped write this and and listening to someone who worked on it like we're all talking about empathy it's always interesting to see like the flaws in the humanity in all of us you know like ed solomon is not the be all end all of understanding empathy but it's a it's a it's a revelation that we all have the capacity for both and it's it's a revelation that we all have threads of but none of us has the whole story none of exactly. us is able to be that empathetic person all the time all the time you you can't you just can't do it we, no, we're it's, human it's we're exhausting yeah, it, yeah ed solomon on twitter is bill and ted trying to play music at the wedding exactly. you know like yeah and the the um the the thing about where they start to struggle as well i think there's a a, a facet there of um them being so interconnected and so um, uh, linked together, they can't see the gaps between themselves as individuals. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it, it actually is quite logical that they would struggle to see how are we going to bring together other people because they don't understand what those gaps are. So how would they know how you cross them? How would they know how mm-hmm. you you pull them together? Whereas B and T, although they are clearly great friends and, and care about each other very much, their their connection seems to be through their dads and through music. So there is a definite um, line of individuality between the two of them. They are two very different people. They don't finish, mm-hmm. finish each other's sandwiches. They don't um, <laughs> uh, insist on referring to themselves in the, in the collective. They can yeah. see that gap and therefore they are better placed to be able to empathise with other people who are feeling that gap very intensely. Um, yeah. And that, I think, comes down to that. This, this was a, a great statement from um, I'm, I'm part of a, a coaching discord um, for ADHD. And, and something that somebody said on there was that if you're going to progress in therapy or coaching or anything like that, 
seeing your destination or your destiny as it is in this, that is only half the story. If you're going to get there, you also have to be able to see where you are. And they are so close together and so tightly knit that they can't see where they are and certainly not where they are in relation to everybody else around them. Mm. That reminds me of uh, in Stargate, the movie, if you recall, the seventh symbol on the gate is the point of origin. And it takes you have to have that that point of origin in addition to the destination in order to form the path to tie it into a totally different sci fi franchise. <laughs> OK, okay. so we've talked about uh, what happens when uh, the elderly generations do not support those uh, who came after them. Uh, but. Then we, Bill and Ted go far into the future and they go beyond their uh, prison-bound super-muscle selves and they meet <laughs> their aged, ancient selves, uh, what looks like Grandpa S. Preston Esquire and... Um, and Peepaw. Peepaw. <laughs> uh, Ted Theodore Logan. And they have completely different attitudes as, as ancient uh, old stallions. So... Um, what is the what goes on as they meet their extremely old selves for the old selves or for Bill and Ted in that moment one than the other right yes fair point I would say the (laughs) compassion returns the the self compassion (laughs) returns I, I, uh, what you said uh, before about disapproving, they, uh, in just, w- at the end, um, you're left feeling like, have they just deceived themselves again? But then old Bill mutters to old Ted, you know, they're, they're good kids. And, and it feels like there's, uh, they're actually looking back with faith that in this case, their younger selves can actually carry that torch. Mm, yeah. yeah. The opposite of that can be so toxic in terms of the intersection between um, different generations. If you think of how many um, terrible, I'm going to say habits, but what I really mean is abuses that go on because a parent or a grandparent says... I have to do this to you for your own good. Psychopaths. Mm. Otherwise, you won't know what the real world is like. The real world is like that because people like you keep perpetuating that kind of behaviour. One of the things that I like to say about this is the whole, you know, well, I had this horrible, cruel treatment done to me when I was a kid and it didn't do me any harm. If you think it's okay to treat people cruelly, it did do you harm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's the, it's that weird like fraternity hazing mindset of like, well, mm-hmm. I had to go through this as a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Now I have to do it to you, or you will not be the same as me. Yeah. So, right. so and forgiving one of the student that... loans is doing an injustice to all the people who had to pay theirs off. Yeah. One of the things that keep that the elderly keep coming up with on Twitter or wherever they've been allowed access to social media is. <laughs> The notion that the young are soft and that they should be hardened and that they should be atrophied and that their sensitivities and emotions should be crushed to make them stronger. Yes, it said the generation that had access to home ownership like so easy. (laughs) Eat my shorts. (laughs) That is a conscious 
limiting of empathy. And yes, to a degree, mm-hmm. there are um, there are situations where we do have to curb um, our empathy, or not. We have to, but in order to do a certain thing, we may need to. Um, and to to sort of bring it back to um, a very very basic level, if you're in a situation where in order to eat, you're going to have to kill something. That is a limitation of empathy. That is something that you have to do in order to not starve mm-hmm. to death. Mm-hmm. Very few of us these days, in certainly in the in what's laughingly called the advanced world, um, very few <laughs> of us are in that circumstance. So we look to other ways that we can limit our empathy and then say, well, it makes me, that makes me more successful because I'm willing to go and step on somebody else. That makes me achieve. And we are in this loop at the moment where that has been reinforced positively. And people have been taught that, yes, limiting your empathy will make you a better success. You could get all the way to the, United, uh, the, the president of the United States of America this by is- crushing mean, your empathy kind of the only way to get there <laughs> at the moment it, it would appear so yes it, and one thing that that comes in concert with this where that last scene is concerned i think is that by and large and i'm sure there are examples of this where there isn't true but by and large self-love is an act of emotional intelligence mm-hmm. self-aggrandizement can turn into narcissism very quickly but actual self-love is an act of emotional intelligence and empathy is emotional intelligence and what seems to have happened and the last scene is that old wise peepaw grandpa logan esquire have learned to love people who aren't present which is to say i don't necessarily think bill and ted are in a codependent relationship because we don't actually see them be miserable apart from one another or dependent on each other's feelings but they are so intertwined when we see them that it's like they have to feel the same thing that that is is necessary and i'm struck by the line that i think it's ted says uh, when he uh, about uh, uh, joanna and elizabeth are they here they're here but they're not here he sees something to the effect of basically they're with us even though they're gone mm-hmm. and that seems to hint at an understanding that people live inside your heart and you can love them when they're not right by your side and you can exist on your own with others, with the rest of the world. And they have learned somehow to be separate and still connected to each other, to people. Um, and, and that's a kind of growth moment where they're not stuck in this cycle with each other anymore. And, and that they, they still feel um, their wives apart from the way they feel each other. And that that has shifted. And that that allows them to look back on their own lives and see themselves as these good kids and not these failures for failing to write the song or not achieving that in their life, which was meant to be the pinnacle of their success or failure. And it's a just a gorgeous moment. It's so heartbreaking and beautiful and lovely. I'm floored by that. Okay. Mm, um. Me too. That was fantastic. And actually, Scott, thank you for that because you have now given me something that I was working on in therapy that I that shines a little light on something that I was stuck on. So thank you very, very much. If, what's the opposite what? of heartbreaking? Is it heart reinforcing where it kind of... Yeah. It, heart <laughs> heartwarming, swelling. I'd say. Yeah. I suppose... It, 
Yeah. There's there's a saying because heartbreak doesn't mean your heart's not working. It just means it's it's working overtime. Mm. Well, there's mm. there's a, a saying about heartbreak um, that let my heart be broken so there will be room in it for limitless love. Oh God. So maybe that's what you mean. I've never heard that before, and I'm going to write that down. That's unbelievable. <laughs> so back to something that we'll we I can find you the proper quote because we're I'm talking sure about changed it just a few minutes ago. Why are Billy and Thea, or B and T, the ideal daughters for these two? And what do they achieve that we haven't already said um, that allows them to actually uh, do what their fathers couldn't? I love when Rachel makes that face. Because <laughs> it means something like, really good is it, coming. It comes yep. to me, you know, because they are not burdened with the task of greatness. They are they are unchained to their own destiny in a way that allows them to see outside of themselves and realize that they need Jimmy, they need Louis, they need Mozart, you know, they need these other people to achieve the greatness together, where Bill and Ted are trapped in their own end game of we're gonna write this song that's gonna change the world. We don't know how we get there, but we know we have to get there. And that is such a limit. You know, that is such a burden. That is such an all-encompassing idea. Like, we are two of the most important individuals in this world. And if we don't do it, nobody will. And that is such a, that is such a, like, railroaded path. But Billy and Thea are, are without this idea. Like, they, they get to create the rules as they go because they don't have a magical destiny they are unaware that they are the actual like linchpin in the world being what it needs to be and that is so liberating for them and so illuminating and so freeing and i think it is because they are not beholden to a destiny that they get to experiment that they get to go out and and think okay well what can we do to help Right, they don't even consider themselves to be musicians. Yeah. Mm. They're just yeah. deep appreciators of music so that when they find mm -hmm. themselves on stage, what they're doing on the fly is composition, but it's fifth right. dimensional composition. Mm. Yeah, they are gifted at listening, selecting from that mass of what they're listening to what works and what might work together and recombining things and they're not afraid to as you say Rachel they're not afraid to experiment they're not afraid to try different things but because they have that distance because they have those gaps uh, between themselves and between the rest of the world they are able to see clearly though they may not necessarily know consciously that this is what they're doing when they seek out that chain of inspiration like you said about Jimmy is inspired by Louis who is inspired by Mozart who is inspired by Ling Lun who's inspired by Grom in, in some way that also goes forward. I went looking for a link between Jimi Hendrix and Van Halen. And although I couldn't find anything concrete saying that they acknowledged a, a direct musical influence, Jimi Hendrix owned a recording studio called Electric Lady Studios. That is where Gene Simmons recorded and produced 
Van Halen's, I think it was their second demo tape, Zero. Mm. That was done in Jimi Hendrix's studio. And Van Halen inspired. Van Halen inspires Wild Stallions, mm-hmm. and Wild Stallions inspires B and T. Wow. And to take this, to take it all the way back to the beginning, we were talking about how B and T excel at just listening and picking out the pieces that are good and and experimenting with different viewpoints. What is empathy? But listening and seeing things from different perspectives yeah yeah what uh, going back to what uh, scott said about death the fact that b and t are able to talk him round there's put it like this bill and ted putting out a restraining order on death <laughs> you can read all kinds into that but it is a yeah. move of fear our greatest fear is that we will die before we achieve what we need to achieve. We write like we're running out of time because we're terrified the Reaper will come for us at an inopportune moment. Them shooing away death is them saying, <laughs> we've got to be able to make this song. And it takes their daughters saying, it's okay, come in. Embracing death and allowing yourself to live life to its fullest in the knowledge that death will someday come for you and that's okay. And I will say this as well, in, in light of that, trying to shoo away death and find a way that you can, through the system of, of law, keep death away from you. Okay, Boomer, that is what that generation is going to have to contend with because their refusal to permit death and therefore renewal is the source of a lot of the shit that we are trying to process right now. Mm. Unreal. How does this movie do all this in 82 minutes? It's 82 minutes, right? It's so quick. Yeah. There's a lot of incredibly efficient shorthand going on in this film. I think as well, there's there's a part of that in the way... This is something that I love. I love seeing this in in, um, young actors, young celebrities, the way that that, um, people from the... the, What do they call them? iGen? Yes. Mm. Or Gen Z, if you will. Our daughter's Gen. the, The way they seem to interact with each other. There is virtually no artifice. There is no crap. They get straight to the point. They declare, ah, fake laugh, hiding real tears. Exactly. That's and it's, and it's Gen like, Z's sense of humour. any idea how much time you just saved with that simple declaration? You are saving yourself at least four years of counselling with just yeah. that statement. <laughs> but if you observe Gen Z as they are, all of the, the trappings that the boomers bought into their houses, all that furniture, all those acquisitions, all of that sense of owning property and owning stuff, they've just kind of shooed that away and gone, I just kind of need this thing, this, this pad, this little tray. It'll allow me to communicate with everyone else. They don't yeah. have all the clag holding them down. Mm. They clear away the bullshit. Uh, yeah, and it's and it's really fascinating to watch that even on like an emotional intelligence level. Like you're talking about the humor of Gen Z, like the fake laughing while crying, that they they have so beautifully broken away from toxic happiness. You know, like 
that 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 sort of like boomer sensibility of like you're never fully dressed without a smile you know like <laughs> smile and the world smiles with you you know like that that idea of like happiness is the goal like to be happy all the time is the end game and i think the the bridging of the gap between boomers and 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 gen z is like millennial misery <laughs> it's yeah, and gen I, I x also... resentment <laughs> Yeah, Gen X, Gen X resentment built out of millennial misery at the at the prospect of being raised by a, 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 a generation that like will punch you in the face and then tell you to smile about it. You know, that's sort of like Boomer's whole deal. Like, mm -hmm. you don't get a home, but you have to be happy about it because this and this and this, you know. It's important. And then millennials to... are just like, well, this sucks. Everything's bad. And then and then Zoomers get to be like, oh, yeah, it does suck. Let's fix it. You know, it's important to note that oh, uh, most of those articles about how uh, we eat too much avocado toast as millennials, um, it, it, the, the retort is immediately, OK, Boomer, you bitter old bastard. The boomers are in their like 70s now. They're not in charge of writing articles. Those are written by bitter Gen Xers However, yeah. I who have say, learned the wrong fucking response from their parents. The websites and the newspapers that the bitter Gen Xers are writing them for mm. are owned by boomers. So effectively, yeah. they are still trying They're to They're being cultivated dad. to send yeah. out the mm -hmm. wrong message. Yeah, yeah it's, the, it's the hierarchy of age of mm. like, the boomers are dictating to Gen X, like, the vibe. But the vibe isn't that anymore. The vibe is like millennials like recontextualizing what matters and then and then Gen Z just going, yeah, but even that, like that's kind of bullshit too. Like you're you're sort of like seeing this like tree ring of ideology passing down, being refiltered, being reprocessed and recontextualized to the end of a Greta Thunberg who is like, hey, Hey y'all, up there on the top of the mountain, y'all like killed the planet. Can we not? <laughs> Yo, it's, let's it's, also put not. it another way. Shut that girl shit up. rolls downhill. Yeah, shit oh, rolls that's downhill. Your trickle down economics for you. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Uh, that's what they were yeah. always talking about. Oh. Shit trickle down economics. Just a giant <laughs> dung beetle. The only thing that came down from Hold on high, yeah. really. It, it, to, going off the Greta Thunberg uh, concept and into like the unbelievable. Um, expediency of this film i think i i've always thought like you are what you consume right you and that includes food that includes art that includes everything that includes the social media platform you're on it all affects your thinking and and how you function in the world and there is something to be said i've always thought for like i sound so old now keeping up with the youth because it's destructive <laughs> of of where things are headed and when you think of TikTok as a place where so many youth spend their time you understand that the one of the best versions of that is a lot of story in 15 to 60 mm -hmm. seconds yeah. like a, a ton of story and that that's the way that generation is wiring its brain mm -hmm. effectively to communicate and so, with each other really fast exactly yeah. and to cut through that bullshit. and and i love greta's speeches i love in fact some of the lengthier speeches, but I feel like every 60 seconds, I could insert a cut into a Greta speech and I would have a nice 60 seconds that function in and of itself. She too yeah. is wiring herself that way. 
And mm-hmm. to this film's credit, it seems to hone in on a little bit of that. It seems to, it, like, because it has characters who represent that generation go, we can afford to move this fast, too. And this is a slight pivot away from this, but I, I had to ask, because when I was watching the movie this time, I thought of this. Did you guys ever hear about that exhibit in New York? And I'm about to look up the artist called The Clock. It was a massive film project. Oh. Did this? So The Clock, I believe this happened in about 2008. And the idea of The Clock was that it was a 24-hour movie. It was created by a visual artist. And you would be allowed to enter. There was a long line to enter. And whatever time you entered the movie theater, that was going to be reflected on screen from a different movie. They had stitched together all these movies so that you were present in any given moment of what time it was. Here's an example from when I went and saw The Clock. I went in the afternoon. And there's a sequence in Die Hard with a Vengeance that takes place during the afternoon where Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson have to get across town in 20 minutes. Are you aiming for these people? No. Maybe that mine. Yes. Yes, exactly. So this film caught the very beginning of that sequence where he says it's X and X time. And then we cut through about 100 different movies over the next 20 minutes that each had a scene taking place at the minute after that, and the minute after that, and the minute after that. I'm assuming this 20... got a copyright strike. It did. Oh, it very much did. This was, there, was, <laughs> there was so much controversy around this thing. But then 20 minutes later, actually 20 minutes later, there Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis were back again, ready to save the day, having gotten across town. And it made you so hyper aware of how time flowed and how films compress and manipulate our understanding of time. It is remarkable to me that I think this movie almost gets it right to the minute. Like, I think the things that need to happen by 717 take the exact amount of time that are outlined Mm -hmm. at the moment the movie starts. So it actually does happen in real time while you're watching it, but it's never exhausting. And the only time I've ever seen that happen, it was exhausting to a fault by design, right? To actually be confronted with time that directly is is quite strange. We're meant to lose track of time. This film kind of doesn't doesn't ask us to do that and pulls off that magic trick. Um, and I, yeah. I couldn't believe that. Watching You're watching this. the pot and it boils. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, absolutely. But it's, it, it also has like really strong narrative structure and all these themes. So you get lost in those as much as you do the run of time. And it's uh, I, I can't say enough about that uh, from a directing and writing perspective. Mm-hmm. I have to shout out the directing perspective too because uh, Dean Paris had directed Galaxy Quest and so he's now gone two for two on truly great sci-fi tinted comedies or mm-hmm. sci-fi adjacent comedies and what a what a run. Mm-hmm. What a CV, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Galaxy Quest, Home Fries. All Dean Parasite joints. And the yes, Drew Barrymore uh, film? Was, uh, Drew Barrymore, Luke Wilson, Luke Wilson. romantic comedy. Yeah. Same director. Weird. <laughs> um, okay, so this is just a little side question because it's kind of a curio. Uh, he, it almost seems like Death or Station from Bogus Journey. Dennis Caleb McCoy, this Terminator <laughs> thingy that gets uh. sent back in time. It almost feels like at some point Dennis should have buggered off out of the script, but then they kept him around. 
and he's very apologetic and wants to be part of this. What is Dennis? He's he's artificial intelligence achieving life, and mm. the stakes of the movie are so monumental that it doesn't even register to everybody that that's this incredibly important, amazing thing that's happening. He, <laughs> he gets a conscience that they, yeah. live, that they call a malfunction, which is a wild thing that happens, actually. Oh. Right. They're calling his empathy a malfunction because yeah. the, the, the thing he mm. experiences that wakes him up is guilt and regret. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And they're at a point where they don't have empathy, right? They're they're in their sort of blinders on, we've got to get this done kind of thing. Shoot us. We got to get downstairs. Mm-hmm. We got to get down to hell and take care of this. So just shoot us. You know, they don't really even have empathy for themselves at that moment. And they are calling his a malfunction, uh, a bug, not a feature. Unbelievable. If I may, perhaps Dennis is the millennial generation, treated and used coldly by the boomers, blamed for ruining everything whilst experiencing an existential crisis, feeling purposeless and still really wanting to help. But yeah, beyond that, I'm like, what is his function in the film? Like, what is what is the point of having Dennis McCoy around outside of the mm. fun of games of like a character developing a conscience who's artificially intelligent and it not registering? Yeah, I wonder. And this is just me spitballing out of out of nowhere. Since we since we have been touching on a lot of like post-apocalyptic media through the 70s and the 80s and and sort of like that idea of like the Terminators, the machines take over and they are humanity's downfall. And I feel like this movie is a disaster movie, but it fixes the disaster instead of like that Armageddon, like, oh, the Chrysler building gets d- ganked, you know, like whatever. <laughs> um, d- ah, destruction and death and, and only some people survive. But this one is sort of like the negation of all of that like no everybody lives this time you know everybody makes it everybody thrives maybe dennis is there to sort of be the the facet of that disaster pie that deals with artificial intelligence with like robotics as the as the the step of the next direction but also the the path to our downfall but this movie wants to say no like this is a miracle. Like Dennis is a miracle. He's not an abomination. He's a path forward, you know, in in so much pessimism. Like if this is this movie is optimism, you know, and maybe Dennis is there to sort of be the answer to a lot of like that pessimistic thinking about the progression of technology. Like, oh, machines are going to take your job. Machines are going to listen to you all the time which is not great by the way you hear me you hear me theory you get on out uh (laughs) but like a more hopeful direction that progress can go in i do feel like dennis's um uh, technological origin is significant if only in the sense that it's it seems to be saying technology is not inherently bad but it's not inherently good either. It mm. is going to depend on what you decide to do with it. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that he looks like a Mac. 
To elaborate on the millennial theory, I was wondering if he was um, an offshoot of iGen that have been programmed to to lean into this despair and that everything's screwed and they aren't going to help things move along. And then finding themselves in an emotional quandary, as as Bill says, uh, having a nervous breakdown, because that just isn't working for them. They, They observe their own... Uh, actions and realize that they're not that there are things they could have done to help and they aren't doing it I just it feels like bringing them in it has a measure of forgiveness to it and a measure of putting them back on the right path yeah he is very much do what future mom tells me to do and yeah. and he starts out being you know you you were created to do this one thing and he's like, yep, that's that's my function, that's what I am all about. And then he does the thing he was created to do, and it makes him get a glimpse of that authenticity that we talked about, that, that um, have a feeling, feel the feeling. And to the people around him, it is a little bit annoying. And ultimately, that doesn't matter. He still needs to be given space and caring to be able to feel his feelings. Throw a wild take that just to me on uh, on Dennis. Go for it. This the, the conversation like that we're having right now is essentially we're talking about you know the old people from the future uh, pitted against the young people of you know b and t right and we're using those as analogies to or metaphors for boomers up at the top shitting on everybody below them and gen z at the bottom trying to fix things and do everything right whilst being killed and we've already right and we've already touched on this a little bit but what if dennis is the manifestation of gen x who is those writers that like those those New York Times writers who are cultivated by the boomers mm. that own those offices saying this is your job this is what you do you grew up with the terminator therefore you are now the terminator we are Marvin right. the paranoid android <laughs> and they have these things that they're set up to do and meanwhile the entire argument the entire discussion is boomers versus millennials versus gen x or versus gen z meanwhile gen x is going hey i'm here too i have feelings and i'm valid and everyone else is like dude shut up dennis we (laughs) don't care i haven't got a clue what they are but i do have them poor millennials though gen z hate millennials as do uh boomers so they're kind of getting it from both sides no one appreciates them and i'm a millennial with a foot in gen z Mm-hmm. X. X. Yeah. Yeah. Born in 1980. So. We're, we're on the cusp, yeah. aren't we? 81 right here. But it's, it's difficult to really anchor yourself to one particular generation, especially if you are interested in lots of different kinds of media, because we're absorbing stuff like the Owl House, which is not really aimed at people of our age. <laughs> I love the Owl House. And our daughter loves um, Steven Universe, but yeah, you could argue that good. Steven Universe isn't aimed at little kids. So it's 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 uh, it's arranged so that it's very appealing to little kids. But it's aimed at neurotic millennials. Absolutely. I would, it, 
Go ahead. I would say that there is a very specific cross-generational function for shows that operate in that space. And it's that it they, by their very nature, have appeal that is slightly different for each age group that they work for not that they are necessarily aimed at but that they work for but specifically they allow those age groups to understand each other because they are also seeing that thing and being able to see it from the perspective of okay well like one of the reasons that Mm -hmm. i absolutely love the owl house is not just that it is fantastic in and of its own right but because my child loves it and watching it from their perspective enables me to to empathize with them and feel what they're feeling and see what they're seeing in a different way yeah and then like as someone who watches the owl house without children it's an avenue to sort of like even empathize with like the machinations of like politicizing or categorizing individuals you know like the enti- the entire sort of like political crux of the owl house is all about like predetermination and predestiny and having sort of the like the chutzpah to stand against that and go no we are multifaceted beings like Ida is the representation of like willingly being a little bit of all the things in a society that's like you need a brand like you need one avenue of a thing and that's the thing you're gonna do all of the time you know and it's and it's so beautiful to see like that be the struggle for the adults in the room but it is still so affecting ever, the children in the room you know so if you ever do an owl house episode uh, alex and sharon i think we found your guest <laughs> Oh my gosh, I could I, literally I could talk for for ages about anim, like modern animation, like what every what modern animation is doing. Stuff like Infinity Train, Owl House, Steven Universe. I just started watching a thing called Summer Camp Island. Like there's 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 so much depth and breadth in these like animated pieces that I think adult media isn't quite getting anymore like i think adult media like movies and adult television is so focused on being this one thing like we have to look like concrete because we're the mcu like we have to do the one thing all of the time we have to regurgitate the same story at you again and again and again and all of a sudden you have something like summer camp island where it's like surprise witches whatever it's fine (laughs) we're gonna do it don't don't worry about it uh it's it's fantastic. I love I love things that are built to appeal to all ages. We have yet to cover the second season of Gravity Falls. We just finished the first one, so if you do <gasps> like that, we. Can I love Gravity that. Falls. Are you, I am Mabel. Like I am absolutely one hundred percent Mabel. Like, yeah. like I'm I'm a, I'm a Mabel who grew into an Ida. Like no joke. Oh my lord! <laughs> okay, I, I, it's I disgusting. adore Ida. It's disgusting. Yeah. <clears throat> oh my god, she's the best. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but, I think. Oh, 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 if I if I may, we're talking sort of about like characters representing each generation, and we sort of have like the great leader being sort of like the boomer generation, this future generation creating Dennis to sort of be the extension of power, sort of like the the infantry for the agenda. Then you've got sort of like Billy and Thea as sort of the the Zoomers, the 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 Gen the Gen Zers, you know, the the up and coming future. 
I posit that Kelly is the millennial generation. I can see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For for she is there to hold on to the radical belief that is that is being lost. You know these these mm. great ideals, but not really being able to execute them alone. Like millennials are kind of in this weird rock hard place of just like how do we affect change while the generation before us is just holding on so staunchly to what is happening and the generation behind us is trying to also push back against that in a way that we didn't perceive mm-hmm. like i think that millennials are kind of like that weird bridge gap of being the first to move out of the way and sort of like mm-hmm. leading that charge of like hey we got to all work together you know we've got to facilitate the ideas of those behind us without shitting on them like the generation did before us at us like mm-hmm. i think kelly is the manifestation of sort of that millennial facilitator role that i mm-hmm. that i that i would be proud to be a part of as a well, much, I wonder, like, much like uh, bill and ted say at the end of the movie to to be in tea you're not here to back us. We're here to back you. Mm-hmm. We yes. are your band. And yeah, I think Kelly is making that same role. She's like, she's to your point. She's there to empower the next generation to do the job that our generation was unable to. Mm-hmm. She opens the doors. She hooks up the circuits, but she's not there to actually change the future herself. And I, I do wonder if a little bit of that is the one overwhelming sense that I get from um, uh, millennial-themed frustration, if you like, is this feeling of you have to run and run and run and run and run and run to stay in the same spot. Mm-hmm. And okay, well, what if we just stop? Well, then we'll fall over, but maybe that's okay. Maybe mm. that is kind of what we have to do, is is stop this relentless run and run and run and run and run to try and keep up with ourselves, because all we're doing is burning ourselves out, and it's yeah. not benefiting anybody. And, and to your point, where does that relentless run get her? In hell, and once she's in hell, she finally lets herself be rageful at her mother. Mm, right? Yep. A call from beyond being like, You screwed me over. Nothing has gotten better by employing your death machine in this instance, and I'm going to go fix it. But she sort of does reckon with that anger that millennials are now allowing them to have allowing themselves to have for the older generations. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's totally on, Rachel. That makes a lot of sense to me. I heartily agree. I far prefer Kelly as millennials. If nothing else, it's more complimentary than poor Dennis. But the concepts behind Dennis's existential crisis still do apply, whether he's a millennial in a tailspin or a Gen Z refugee halfway between Zuma and Duma. The conclusion is guilt-tripping groups of people, even if generations and the grouping thereof is arbitrary in and of itself, is never going to be as effective for moving forwards as inclusivity and support. This sounds like a, uh, not so much a refutation, but evidence that the generation of boomers whom Bob Dylan sang about, you know. Mothers and fathers throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command your old road is rapidly aging 
Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For oh, the times they are changing Back in 1964, Bob was singing to the parents of the boomers. And they themselves have not gotten out of the way if they can't lend a hand. They are, in fact, fucking up the future. I I love that song, and I, I feel like it needs to be brought forward every generation and expressed again in a different yeah. way. And I, and I also, think it's also... Oh, go, go ahead. I was just going to bring in the the fact that uh, Alex that Bob Dylan impression was most excellent most most not heinous indeed <laughs> most triumphant <laughs> your most sons triumphant. and your daughters are beyond your command and that's the way it fucking should be yeah it's true uh, uh, but i think it's really interesting when we're talking about the generations prior to us uh, and i think we do need to take just a moment and really like kind of understand like materially where they are you know um and I, I i literally think about this like once a week i think about what the two generations before mine have lost you know like members of the of communities that are starting to thrive with our generation and 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 not below us but like the next link after us we have such thriving diverse communities you know that were lost i i'm constantly in awe at the idea that like american mccarthyism ended the same year that schools were desegregated like there was an entire war in the 50s against those who were physically different and also politically different like the idea that you were like here and here in the states especially you were told communism was bad by people who said segregation was good and so many of the great thought leaders of those periods like your fred hamptons were lost to us because of that and then you see sort of like gen x going through a similar situation with like the aids crisis i think about how many of our lgbtq plus forebears were lost because they were abandoned by leadership you know i think that the, the the literal landscape of the generations before us are so intrinsically linked to the loss of empathy that it is hard for them to like strive because those who survived were those who were not marginalized those who survived were those who were privileged in one way or another and so we're sort of staring down not only a generation unwilling to change but a generation that got lucky that they didn't have to suffer at the hands of policies mm-hmm. I guess and I think that's always important to remember that like the generations before us have lost so much and I wonder how much COVID is going to affect like our generation and the Zoomer generation because it does target poorer communities, communities of color you know and like what is that landscape going to look like when those who were lucky enough to survive do and like what will be the lessons that we learn from this That's because it seems like the generations behind us like the ones that came that the the boomers and the and the gen xers kind of maybe learned the wrong lessons the post-apocalyptic only some of us get to survive yeah and that's a really valid concern because i think one of the things that that covid and the pandemic is going to 
have caused when we come out of all this and are able to look back on it and, and actually have a reckoning with it is there's obviously there is there is loss there is great loss of the people who have suffered and died from it but specifically intergenerational loss is mm -hmm. going to be huge because there are going to be so many people who lost grandparents before they were yeah. supposed to who lost parents before mm -hmm. they were supposed to who even if they didn't lose them in literal terms lost a year of engagement where they were told don't go and see your grandparents because they might mm -hmm. die and while that is absolutely right and it is it is appropriate that they should have kept away from them so that they could keep them as safe as they possibly could could that is time that they're not going to be able to get back and that, that mm -hmm. has created a sense of the older people over here and the younger people over here and you guys need to keep working and put yourselves at risk and you guys need to just you know go away and, and close yourself behind a door. Meanwhile, the elderly and our parents behind our backs are getting hooked on QAnon and becoming conspiracy <laughs> nuts and we're losing them in that way emotionally yeah. and psychologically as well to the point where we can't even connect with them anymore because they start screaming about pizza parlours and the child sacrifices that probably go on underneath them and, and various other flat earth... So it's so it's not just the, um, the, the loss of great swathes of those communities as as you described already in the the older generations rachel it's a it's disconnection also a, a mm -hmm. mass disconnection almost if you think about it like a um, generational rift uh, that's that's mm. like a direct spring back from the mass connection that the internet was supposed to represent mm -hmm. so misinformation has pasted over information mm -hmm. and divided where it previously would have united. Yeah. <sighs> we were trying to find something fun and hopeful to finish off on, folks, but we're going to have to keep working at this. And I'm sure you... It is so wonderful working with you, um, Scott and uh, Rachel and Jesse. That I'm, I hope you won't mind if we bring you on every week to talk about every film we ever talk about. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I will, down. Listen, I will. I will clear the schedule. Yeah, for Hands sure. Uh, if I, if I may, Go. I know, I, I know, I brought us down into a deep well of sorrow and sadness and and introspection. Mourning. Maybe our our our, our fallen comrades. You know, those we lost along the way. Yeah. But if I can tie it all together with this film, we have lost ourselves in our individual worries and our individual uh, problems, but the way out is together. The way out is to take up arms and instruments in, in the hands of those around us. Even if we can't reach out and touch someone, we can reach out through these. Like, we are we are on completely different timelines right now. You know, not timelines, time zones. And we are all connected potato, here. Potato. Talk, <laughs> timeline, time zones, what? But yeah, exactly. But the togetherness is what is going to save us. The togetherness is what is going to bring about the change, whether it is the togetherness of a protest or the togetherness of a cinema experience. We need to stop thinking of ourselves in a vacuum and we need to take a little bit of the lesson of Bill and Ted and become one being. 
of many of many parts, an orchestra, as it were, where <laughs> the harmony of all of our individual voices come into into one space and one time, and we all push forward as one. I love how Earth uh, B and T, uh, the the band they pull together in the end before it even starts extending out through history and through uh, the, all of us is so much broader and more diverse than what their, their their dads came up with it's we've gone from rock and specifically hair metal a let's face it very white musical form to two girls who can appreciate music that is created by well ultimately it's it's almost like bringing louis armstrong and even grom, grom. the the original drummer it's almost like giving it back to the people who invented the original musical forms that were stolen from them. Mm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and, and it, it's, it was telling to me that like the one musical genre that doesn't show up in that band is country, which I, I know there's, there's a ton of empathy, but there is, because ultimately that is, and I'm, I'm not, it's so easy to kick country. There are some people who do amazing things with that musical form. I'm looking at you, Tyler Childers, but that ultimately that's a genre that sort of doesn't acknowledge the original sin of rock music which is is mm-hmm. stealing it from BIPOC creators and yeah steal he's stealing it from them because you wouldn't allow their personages into performance spaces like literally stealing the music from someone because you don't want them inside of your building like which, that is insanely fucked and, and to be fair like I think this actually this movie was filmed if i'm not mistaken the year that country music actually had its reckoning so when they were writing it that hadn't happened yet but they would have been filming in summer 2019 which is when little nas x is going no old town road is a country song and billy ray cyrus shows up and goes yeah he's right i agree with him throw me on the track and gets it on top of the country charts. So actually- On top like, of all the charts, like Old Town Road all- stuck around for a, a while. Oh, yeah, it did. Yeah, it My did. favorite things to dance to in Just Dance 2020. <laughs> Love it. I do have, hopefully I can make a, a quick, hopeful potential closeout here. Okay. Um, and it has to do with the actual time travel mechanics. Um, <laughs> And, and how it can give us a bit of a hopeful turn. Um, the, the quick way to describe this is that we've talked about it before as, as fixed thread. And what's happening in this movie and the way that it ends up not contradicting itself is that that thread has become unraveled. And the worry from the future is that when it realigns and reassembles, it's not going to reweave into the same future that we're used to. And mm-hmm. that, that that is what B and T and the and you know the band all throughout time by playing in sync and doing everything they're able to maintain that stability and weave the thread back into the way that it's supposed to be which makes me hopeful for that future because mm-hmm. this future because what it means is that Wild Stallions and Bill and Ted weren't directly responsible for that future. They were just indirectly responsible for it because they prevented the universe from ending. So while we don't have a Wild Stallions in our universe, it gives me hope that we don't need one. That maybe if we can just kick it through the next couple generations, that we will get there on our own. That humanity will 
make it. We are our own wild stallions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the wild stallions were the friends we made along the way. <laughs> okay. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Bailey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Lux, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Haskell, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. That is the end of our shows on Bill and Ted, though what we have learned in time will absolutely abide in our future works. Before our esteemed and most excellent guests depart, let us ask them for an episode of their show that they are most proud of and would like to direct our listeners to. So we'll start with Rachel, time is a lake, shame. Oh, yes. Uh, I would say that my most favorite episode of the Infinity Podcast is the one where I got Patrick and Scott to finally watch the first four episodes of the anime, My Hero Academia. Not only (laughs) was it one of the most joyful experiences I've ever had, it has also kickstarted a lot of our listeners to also be watching My Hero Academia. And like, if that is a gift that I can give to others, I'm so proud and so pleased. I just had a a friend of many podcasts, the Dan Purcell, uh, say that uh, Tokoyami, a, a young hero who has a dark shadow in the shape of like a bird creature, is a very good character. And I was like, that's my favorite. And I love when a, a weird, a weird gonzo show that I like bridges communication, you know? So I'm particularly pleased and proud. Also, that's literally the happiest you will ever hear me on air probably forever (laughs) until we talk about my hero academia on air again so So, that one i forget the title of it the infinity podcast Podcast. okay uh and scott thomas well since none of the episodes of and the best picture is that will be out when this drops have actually happened yet except the patreon exclusive one i'm also going to pick an infinity podcast episode and i'm going to pick the one in which rachel and i sat down with the filmmaker adam egypt mortimer (gasps) because Alec, you've done such a uh, you and Sharon have done such a beautiful job of articulating that it is a joy to sit with other people who um, not only feel the way you do about media, but enhance and reveal to you what it can be, and 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 that we don't go through any of this alone. And I think our conversation with Adam, for me, and and it sounds like for you too, Rachel, was a, a sort of a mind expansion not only about his work, a movie called Archenemy, but the way he thinks about the intersections of comic and movies, and what he wanted to achieve in making a very modern superhero film, and what that meant to him. And I I want to put him out further into the world as well, and say. Yeah. You know, listen to that episode to discover Adam and go see his work because he's yeah. a very fascinating 
strong, amazing artist. Very, very good comrade, for sure. That was a great episode, too. Thank you. Thank you, man. And finally, Jesse. Yeah, well, now that we've gone on this journey, uh, you can all go check out the Recorded Tomorrow episode where most of this panel talks about Bill and Ted face the music along with Spiros Michalakis who was as you said the science consultant on uh, on the movie uh, it was it was great it was mind bending and it was some of the most fun that I have had on my show and that show all about the intricacies of time travel is called Recorded Tomorrow and I second that tomorrow. it was really great <laughs> I third that And if you're on the $5 level on Patreon, you'll be able to hear 40 extra minutes of Bill and Ted goodness that didn't quite make the final shows on Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey. Here's a little clip featuring Jesse ranting about the absolutely rubbish, ill-considered, live-action Bill and Ted TV show that most people don't remember exists. So they climb up onto the top and they use this comic book, this like, like they basically bind the comic book around the antenna to fix it. Mm -hmm. Then they go and they decide they're gonna go back in 15 minutes. Instead, the phone booth takes them into the comic book. Um... Bill and Ted now proceed to argue amongst themselves about who has to take this girl to the prom because she's ugly and fat. Oh, no. and, yeah. By the way, they're about to propose to their respective babes. Yes. So, does that come into it? No, the babes are not present at all. Right, okay. So the Infinity Podcast and Recorded Tomorrow, those are the episodes to go check out, folks. And we, Sharon and I, will be back next week with another round of commissioned shows from you listeners, including some genuine treats that we really can't wait to talk about. we got Priscilla Queen of the Desert coming up. we got The Others. we got Return to Oz. We've got uh, Murder on the Orient Express and, oh, Kung Fu Hustle. Oh my gosh, please tell me that you are going to, as a companion piece to Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, you are also going to watch Chu Wong Fu. Thanks Chu for Wong everything, Fu. Julie Nova. I think yeah. it's probably, yeah, it's worth checking that one out again, yeah. just to, uh, just to uh, compare uh, and contrast. Uh, I love that movie. <laughs> so stinking much. I cannot believe how beautiful Wesley Snipes is. It, it is, is. Bre- breathtaking. <laughs> cannot believe it. <laughs> I, I'm a fan of Patrick Swayze in that one. That <gasps> Ooh, jawline. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I mean they're all gorgeous. Like every single one of them. Like what, what a, what a good-looking crew of drag queens for mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely a gem of a film. The oh, idea um, that John Leguizamo played that drag queen and Tybalt within a year of one another—just <laughs> that man can get it. What unbelievable yeah. work! Thou art a villain. Okay, and oh, one other film that uh, I have to mention we're throwing into rotation. We are going to cover, I think it's 2001, uh, sports documentary-ish biopic Ali by Michael Mann. Because Ooh. I just really want to talk about Muhammad Ali right now, and you folks will find out why <laughs> soon at the time. So, let's finish on the song that united us all. Until then, I've been Alex S. Preston Esquire. And I've been Sharon Theodore Logan. Be excellent excellent to to each other other. and party on, dudes.
Don't you worry for too long Cause you know these are the songs 